From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. In episode 13, we bring you The Inverted Sheepdog by Graham Hunter, first published in issue 4 in March 2012. I'm standing just outside the Barcelona dressing room door at Wembley, about an hour after Manchester United have been defeated 3-1 in the 2011 Champions League final. The dancing, singing and beer drinking in the Catalan dressing room have only just died down. I've been charged with interviewing two of the winning players, with the trophy, for the final Champions League weekly television programme of the season, and there is a desperate need for a player to emerge from the fiesta. Getting them to agree to the damn request is another thing again. Eric Abadal has stopped, surprising the life out of me by giving me a big bear hug, but he said he'd prefer not to speak because he's too tired and emotional. He has played despite the operation to remove a liver tumour that was supposed to keep him out until August. What's more, he has been given the captain's armband and told to hoist the cup by his captain, Carles Puyol. Tiago, once my sixth-floor neighbour in our Padralbe's apartment block, also pauses for a quick chat, beer in hand, but he's en route to the mandatory UEFA drugs test. Barca's reliable, friendly and hard-working press staff have been inside the dressing room, trying to entice one of the victors out while the songs get louder and more raucous. Time drags on, deadlines are being stretched like United's back four, and it's not looking good. Other players are whisked away by high-ranking backstage officials for television rights holders who have paid handsomely for access. Gerard Piquet, tired and hefting a big cardboard box full of I don't know what, it wasn't the goal net which he cut down to keep as a souvenir because I asked that one, does a nice piece to camera, enjoying being with the cup for a moment. We've been allocated a neighbouring dressing room, and it's a weird moment. The trophy, a Champions League winner I first met when he was still a kid in the Cantera, and an empty, clean, atmosphere-free changing room. But his chat is good and his pleasure at winning radiates like a cloud of happiness. However, while he is filmed, all the other players skip past, leaving just one, Xavi Hernandez. Five minutes, Xavi, not a second more, is my pitch as the two ranks of television reporters about fifty feet away growl and will him to say no so that they can get their last hit of a glorious night. He also knows that everyone else is on the team bus. Not only is a big party at the Natural History Museum in South Kensington waiting for him, but the last one on the coach, especially if the rest have been held up, will know all about it. OK, I know you're good to your word. Let's do it. Joy. We sprint down the corridor, relieve the UEFA official of the trophy he's removing in the quite legitimate belief that the second interview has as much chance of coming as a Christmas card from José Mourinho this year, knock off a quick piece, and prepare to rush the great man to the sanctuary of the bus. For no better reason than residual excitement, I mentioned to him, as we trot out of the dressing room, I thought Messi's movement across your run was outstanding, and it opened up Pedro's space for your assist pass. Xavi's forward run had him poised like a quarterback on the move. Pedro had Nemanja Vidic tight on him, but as Messi went towards Xavi's run, Patrice Evra followed him, Pedro backed off into the vacated space, Xavi found the pass, and his teammate finished bottom corner which is enough to make him stop dead and say, Man, I love the way you talk about your football, and then walk me through how Barca's first goal happened. It was magical, just a fractional glimpse of what we will all miss out on, reporters, fans, officials, sponsors, when the winning players stop to dissect and enjoy what it is they have just done. As for Xavi, it was typical that he was compelled to stop and talk about football. He's as good at analysing it as he is playing it, which is why so many believe he'll become Barca coach. It wouldn't be the first time he had followed in Pep Guardiola's footsteps. 
The chat was one of the best moments of a long career in sports journalism, and it could scarcely have been more different from the first time I had tried to get an interview with Xavi. It was 2002, and I'd just moved to Barcelona. The press office had okayed an interview, but needed clearance from the player. In those days, the setup was different. Sometimes you could see the request from the Barca staff taking place, and, unbeknown to Xavi, I witnessed him listen to the press officer, Kemi Teres. I saw him mull it over for less time than it takes him to find a cute pass before saying, Nah, never heard of him, don't fancy it. Poor old Kemi had to come back to me with the reply, Sorry, something's come up and the player's too busy, let's try again another time. No harm done. Kemi has paid for that work, Xavi probably managed not to lose too much sleep over his sidestep, and I viewed it as an incentive to win his trust as soon as was feasible. Wembley 2011 was different. Xavi and Barca were exhilarating. That first goal against Manchester United typified Xavi, Messi and Barca under Guardiola. When Iniesta slipped the ball to Xavi, he was between the lines, in a pocket of space between the opposition's midfield and defence in this case. Nobody had picked him up. During the dribble, he switched body position in case he had to pass in either direction, but there was a given point when Messi was static and Pedro was sandwiched between Ever and Vidic. No goal chance was obvious. But the very second Pedro decided to take a couple of steps backwards, Messi spotted it, darted three or four metres towards Xavi, dragging Evra with him, and opening a channel for the pass. Vidic, thinking Evra was still behind him, didn't notice Pedro stealing a few yards on him and getting ready to give Edwin van der Sar the eyes and bury the ball past him. It was poetry. Football is full of little ironies and quirks of fate. Consider this. When Xavi was first establishing himself in the Barcelona first team, the chance to join Manchester United came up. He thought long and hard about it, but decided to dig in and fight for his chance at the club he had always supported. Xavi is now the venerated, brilliant, visionary, all-time great Spanish midfielder, but between 1998 and 2002, he was an underrated, misused and unfairly judged young player. His first problem was Pep Guardiola. Xavi followed up his Barca debut against Southampton on the summer tour of 1998 with his competitive debut under Louis van Gaal in the Spanish Super Cup that August. His chance came because Guardiola and Albert Celades were both injured. Xavi had been on holiday, lying on the beach, only to get an urgent call to take a flight back to Barcelona that afternoon, destiny calling. The Super Cup first leg was a horrible defeat at Mallorca, but Xavi scored and received rave notices. Guardiola was one of the quickest to praise his awareness and maturity, but vowed to make it hard for Xavi to take his place. He would deliver on that promise. Van Gaal's team, meanwhile, stumbled on without a single victory, competitive or friendly, from April the 19th the previous season until they defeated Rafa Benitez's Extremadura on September the 13th. Things weren't going well for Spain's champions. In mid-September, Xavi made his Champions League debut at Old Trafford in a frenetic 3-3 draw against the United side that would go on to win the treble that season. His first La Liga start came in an imperious 3-1 win at Valencia the following month. By that time, he seemed established as not only a canterano, a youth team product of major promise, but a first-team regular. That season he played every Champions League group game and made 27 appearances in all competitions, making him the 10th most used footballer in Van Gaal's squad. However, Guardiola's return to full fitness from another calf injury just before the halfway stage of La Liga resulted in fewer appearances for Xavi. It's no disaster for an 18-year-old to be kept out of the side by Philip Cocu, Luis Enrique, Rivaldo, Ronald de Boer, Pep Guardiola and Giovanni, particularly when you score a goal that is vital in the successful defence of the championship. Xavi's strike at Valladolid brought victory in a poor display, 
and sparked a run of one defeat in the next 16 matches until the title was retained. His memory now is that, of course, when I scored in Valladolid, I was really saving Van Gaal's bacon. He had so many detractors at the time, people wanting him kicked out of the club. That goal was the catalyst for us then going on to win the league. Xavi had some important business of his own in the April of that first season as a Barca regular. He, Ike Casillas and Carlos Marchena became world youth champions in Nigeria, winning a tournament that featured several players who would play a part in his story at Barcelona. Ronaldinho, Seydou Keita, Gabriel Melito, Rafa Marquez, Ashley Cole and Julio Cesar. The following year, Xavi, with Marchena, Juan Capdevere and Carlos Puyol, steered a wonderful Spain squad to the final of the football tournament at the Sydney Olympics. He scored in the final, a 2-2 draw against Cameroon, and tucked away his penalty in the shootout, only to lose to opponents inspired by Samuel Eto'o. So, in those two breakthrough years, Xavi won the Spanish title, the FIFA Youth World Cup, and picked up an Olympic silver medal. A Catalan, schooled in the Barca Cantera, evidently gifted and a high achiever. Life should have been sweeter than Turkish delight dipped in Nutella. Yet the Camp Nou not only didn't take him to his heart immediately, he remembers hearing its disapproval if he came on as a substitute for Guardiola, reading fans' letters to papers, hearing them on radio phone-ins, objecting to the young pretender trying to oust King Pep from territory that was rightfully his. The club's managing director, Javier Perez Farguil, had briefed at least one agent that Barca were open-minded to the idea of selling Xavi, largely because he didn't have great marketing cachet. Iniesta they liked, Iniesta was untouchable, but Xavi, well... People initially drew constant comparisons between me and Guardiola. I struggled to shake that off, Xavi admitted when he celebrated his 10th anniversary in the first team in 2008. To be valued and respected for the way I play was a real battle, especially when Van Gaal used us in the same position and compared the two of us at press conferences. It was hard having to compete against my idol. I worried about robbing him of his place, about whether we would get on or not. I idealised everything about Pep, how he talked, his leadership on the pitch. So, psychologically, it wasn't a great beginning, despite the fact that in terms of my own football, I felt great. But either you're man enough to meet the challenge, or you have no place in this club. Xavi hadn't known that Martin Ferguson had caught his debut in his role as head of European scouting for Manchester United. Ferguson recommended that his club keep a very close eye on the Catalan midfield metronome. So when United were alerted to the fact that Barcelona were not only in the doldrums, but that Xavi was at a stage at which he had to decide whether to cut the strings and establish himself elsewhere, or fight for a life at the Camp Nou, there was real interest. When I raised the episode with Xavi just before Wembley in 2011, he explained, There was a long time when I genuinely thought about accepting United's offer. I needed a change of scenery, and things were not going well for me at Barcelona. I don't know, perhaps the club thought about selling me too. I have always felt a real attachment to English football, and Manchester United would be my club in England. For a long chunk of my career, when it looked like I was the successor to Pep in midfield, I was made to feel like an outsider, a bad guy for taking over from the legendary captain. We're not good at handling change here. The new guy is sometimes looked at like the bad guy. I hated all that debate about me and Guardiola, and Van Hal wasn't particularly tactful to put an 18-year-old kid through it. The truth is that his father and both his brothers, Alex and Oscar, at various times shared their feelings that Xavi might have to go somewhere else to be appreciated. What eventually made the difference is that I'm stubborn as a mule, he recalled. I thought about going to United, but I dug my heels in. I said to myself, I need to prove myself here. The lucky break for me came when Pep left. 
As a player, I needed him to go, but then I loved it when he came back to take over as manager. We've always got on well, despite the fact that we had been set up as rivals. Pep gave me advice and tried to help the situation. Now I know exactly what he expects of me, because he's so good at explaining things. It's all worked out in his head and he communicates his ideas brilliantly. I'm a coule. This is my club. I'm in the third Champions League final of this Barcelona generation, and I wouldn't swap anything that I missed for what I've had here. Others took different decisions. Cesc Fabregas left for Arsenal, and his repatriation was a long and thorny process. Mark Crossas encountered similar obstacles. But there was also Mikel Arteta, a real La Masia product. Basque-born, talented, formed at Barcelona, but with quite a queue ahead of him. I left Barcelona because Xavi had just been promoted to the first team, and Pep was still there playing too, so I didn't really see a way forward for me, said Arteta. Luis Fernandez called me to try life at PSG on loan, and I went. He had played in my position, I learned massively from him, and it seemed like a good decision. Xavi's decision to stay has seen him become the most gifted, consistent and visionary player Spain has ever produced. The stats help make that argument. Six league titles and three Champions Leagues with Barca, a world champion with Spain's under-19s, and with the senior team in 2010. He's also the club's all-time appearance holder, and has more than a 100 caps. It is his package of vision, style, steel, technique and will to win, though, that makes him stand alone in Spanish history. Xavi's love affair with the ball began on the concrete-covered Plaza del Progreso in Terrassa, about an hour outside the city of Barcelona. It's where he still lives. Smallest of the gang, Xavi nonetheless ran the show, never letting the ball run away from him on Galileo Street, which runs alongside that town square where a thousand games were won and lost during a golden childhood. He was so good that Antoni Carmona, Barcelona's scout in the valleys, not only spotted him when he was six, but pestered Barcelona remorselessly until they signed him five years later. It took that long because Xavi was particularly small, although, according to his coach, Juan Villa, he already had that amazing ability never to give the ball away. By the age of 11, he was in, initially driven to and from training, a two-hour round trip by his father, then taking the local train from Terrassa to the Camp Nou. His first pay packet, still aged only 11, was 4,000 pesetas, around about £20. He took his mother down to the Rambler in Terrassa and bought her a toaster. Today, that same plaza sports a sign which shows a red line through a soccer ball and reads, Football Prohibido. They've made it very nice, very modern, but they screwed it up for the kids who are like I was. No chance of playing football there now, Xavi told Canal Plus when they filmed a documentary. It all constitutes another little reminder that time never passes more quickly than during a golden age. He turned 32 in January 2012. He had what Barca's medics had called a chronic Achilles tendon problem the previous season, and still played nearly 60 times for club and country. He thinks there are four or five more good seasons left in him. This is the time to savour him. The journey from Terrassa Town Square to Wembley 2011 was filled with learning, intelligence, great passes and good laughs. In our house when I was a boy, we lived and breathed Barca, he recalls. Signing for the youth team meant he got into the matches free, but of course it also meant he wasn't assigned a particular seat. He and the other trainees would turn up ten minutes before kick-off and find somewhere. I'd be delighted with myself that I'd found an empty seat, and then just before kick-off some guy would turn up and say, that's my seat, kid, so I'd have to go and find somewhere else. For the really big matches, I often ended up sitting on the stairs. Xavi's home life gave him valuable backup. The worst time for a young footballer is between the ages of 15 and 18. 
That's when all your mates are going to clubs and dating girls, and you're stuck at home. My dad played professionally in the second division, and a little bit in the Primera, and that helped me. He was on top of me all the time. Get home by ten, you've got a game tomorrow. Diet, timetable, attitude, he taught me about professionalism very early. You need to make sacrifices to succeed, but I've also had a lot of luck. Which is not to ignore his misfortune. Louis van Gaal was his first important senior coach. The Dutchman had the courage to promote the saturnine, intense youngster. The dog days of van Gaal's reign, though, were so flawed that Barcelona would enter a fallow period of five years without a trophy, and with a badly structured salary system and debilitating debts. While van Gaal possesses immense abilities in many areas of football training, he is also brash, stubborn and difficult to be around if he takes against you. He lived off what is called in Spain his libreta, that little notebook you could see him scribbling into during matches. Xavi reported that He used to mark us with stars and show us the book with what it said about us in it. The two had a turbulent relationship, including a spell in which Xavi, having established himself as a first-team regular, was made to do hard time back in the Barca B team. He remembers that period as some of the worst weeks of my career. But the absolute worst thing Van Hal did to this talented, creative passer was to insist that he was, solely, a pivot. Xavi was made to play the defensive role in front of the back four, and, while his ability to pick up possession and restart the creative flow for Barca was of a high level, it was obvious that he had to play further forward in the 4-3-3 formation. Coach after coach missed this, until Joan Laporta was elected president in 2003, and the classic Dutch, or Ajax, philosophy was reinstated. Until Frank Rijkaard arrived, I was a pivot for six or seven years, Xavi said. They asked me to try and get up and down and provide assists, but it's difficult from that position. Ten or fifteen metres further up the pitch, where I play now, makes it much easier for me. I am never afraid of receiving the ball in any situation. I have to get it and pass it a hundred times a match. It's a need. In retrospect, his move towards the danger zone looks obvious. Xavi's predecessor was Guardiola, taller and much happier hitting longer distance passes, but not as nippy across short distances. Since Xavi has been unleashed higher up the pitch, the pivot position has been the exclusive territory of tall, strong tackling players like Ed Milson, Rafa Marquez, Yaya Toure, Thiago Motta and Sergio Busquets. Spot the difference between them and the 5 foot 7 inch Xavi? Then why couldn't Van Hal, Lorenzo Serra Charlie Rexach or Radiantic before Rijkaard took over? Stranger still is that Xavi was so inculcated in his pivot designation that he even told Frank Rijkaard that he didn't really see himself moving further forward in the team. I've learned a lot from every coach, but perhaps what will stay with me forever is him convincing me to change position, because he told me he envisaged me giving the final goal pass much more often, Xavi said. Xavi is the light and shade of the last ten years. He is the same outstanding product of the Barcelona Cantera, which is now being lauded as football's great cure-all production line. A product of the La Masia system? Well, there's nothing shinier, prettier, more fashionable or sexy, but let's not forget that system's flaws and failures. Xavi was mistreated, almost sold, played in the wrong position and left brutally frustrated by a lack of standards, vision and direction at the club. I recall Rijkaard's masterstroke in bringing the Ajax-trained Edgar Davids to Barca in January 2004. He made his debut in a flaccid 1-1 home draw against Athletic, and shone despite being patently out of shape. The link-up play with Ronaldinho defied the Dutchman's reductive Pitbull nickname. Davids and Ronaldinho were on the same level of understanding. I could see Xavi looking to one side each week and realising, 
So that's what it takes for us to be a winning, hard-nosed team again. And that's exactly how I could be playing. Rijkaard's team would have slipped to 8th that night if they'd been defeated. They were already 16 points behind the Liga leaders, Rafa Benitez's Valencia. They were a shambles. But after losing to a David Villa-inspired Zaragoza in the Copa del Rey, Xavi, Davids and Barca lost only once in their next 20 matches, 1-0 to Henrik Larsson Celtic. That was enough to finish second, and, if Rijkaard's team had won, rather than losing two of their last three games, they'd have been champions. Another of the strokes of luck which Xavi mentions is that Rijkaard fervently wanted his former Ajax teammate, Davids, to stay on a permanent deal, but was rebuffed because Inter offered better terms. Rijkaard held a grudge, and when Davids then wanted to return, it was he who was turned down. Davids's departure allowed Xavi, albeit from the other side of midfield, to take up the attacking creative link play with Ronaldinho and then Eto. Tucked away in that 20-match run when only Alan Thompson's goal at Parkhead brought Barca defeat was a win at Madrid in the April, which undoubtedly helped Xavi metamorphose into what he has become. Ghosts were exorcised at the Bernabeu, a marker was laid down and Xavi grew in confidence, putting one over a close but competitive amigo. Los Galacticos, David Beckham, Zinedine Zidane, Luis Figo, Raúl and Roberto Carlos, Ronaldo was injured, were joint top, seven points clear of Barca. A Real victory would have turned blowtorch heat on their co-leaders Valencia and would have cut Rijkaard's surging team adrift. Santi Solari put Los Blancos ahead. A very young and floppy-haired Victor Valdez played unbelievably and eventually Patrick Clivert equalised. The exercised ghost was Figo, who had caused enormous hemorrhaging of self-respect and confidence at the Camp Nou by defecting to Madrid four years previously. A vindictive shin-high foul on Puyol saw the Portuguese sent off, and, when Xavi played a delightful 1-2 with Ronaldinho, it allowed him to volley a lob over his buddy Ike Casillas for victory. Barca went on to finish second, and Madrid's golden Galactico idea began to corrode irrevocably. Following that Xavi-inspired defeat, Madrid lost to Deportivo, Mallorca, Murcia and Sociedad. The result, but more importantly the absolute self-belief displayed that night, marked a shift in power, an augmentation of confidence which would be constantly repeated over the next seven years. That win, that late goal having been won down, changed the winning mentality with which Madrid had dominated Barca for a few seasons, Xavi said. Before losing 2-0 to Barcelona in April 2010, Ike Casillas admitted, People ask me every year who I'd take out of their side to give us a better chance of winning, and every year I tell them, Xavi. Apart from being my friend, he's just fantastic. His control and use of the ball makes him their best player. The relationship between Casillas and Xavi has been a defining point of Spain's growing football maturity and recent domination of international tournaments. Clearly Spain's excellence is a product of many factors, but that Casillas a die-hard Madridista who would be behind the goal with the ultras on the Curva Sur if he wasn't a professional footballer, could be truly close friends with Xavi, a dedicated Barca man and symbol of their modern superiority, has helped mend relations and encourage Catalans particularly to feel differently about the national side. Xavi is first-generation Catalan, proud of his country, but not a radical. His father, Joaquin, is Andalusian. He happily wore a Spain flag while cavorting through the post-Euro 2008 celebrations in Madrid, knowing he'd be criticised for it in Catalonia and not giving a stuff. The two youngsters first met in the build-up to the Under-17 World Cup in Egypt, in which Spain would finish third. During the three-day trial, Xavi played well. Casillas was only 14 but also just a year away from his first call-up to the Real Madrid first team, 
when he travelled as reserve goalkeeper for a Champions League match against Rosenborg in Norway. Two extreme talents, two polar opposites in terms of their football sentiments. They could easily have been friction. Instead, they shared a common enjoyment of pranks, card games, which Casillas always wins, and a hunger for excellence, even perfection. Xavi's view is this. In the youth ranks for Spain, you talk more. Your goals are identical, but you've done nothing. So I think that fear of not achieving and the drive to succeed makes you share more, and thus brings you closer. Their personalities are complementary, not identical. Casillas isn't quite as happy-go-lucky as Xavi, but slightly more intense, slightly more driven. I've often heard Xavi admitting that he can be a little lazy about his work initially, but can also be unstoppably determined when he gets his teeth into training, a match or indeed any other personal objective. Casillas, however, has a remorseless work ethic, a need to set an example, and he hates losing. However, the Catalan explained to me that the Castilian's image can be deceptive. Don't be fooled into thinking that Iker is super serious. He's a joker and a prankster, but I've been privileged to have been his friend and teammate since we were 16. Iker's a complete Madridista, and I defend Barca's colours to the death, but it does give off a good image to people that we are friends and teammates. Ordinary, humble, working-class people get behind the national team when they see our bond. We are just guys who don't know about business or politics, only how to play football well. Xavi often says, If we had more of Madrid's basic philosophy, we'd have won the Champions League far more often. I don't know what exactly that club has, or that badge has, but they have always shown an ability to win even when they don't play well. Or he'll say, Real Madrid players always have loads of jeta, cockiness. In Casillas, he found the former attitude, but an absence of the latter. He liked it and learned from it. The pair of them can also be stubborn when they want to be. I was invited to attend the FIFA refereeing supervisor's briefing of the Spain team in their 2010 World Cup training camp in Pochestrum, South Africa. Horacio Elizondo, the Argentinian who sent Zinedine Zidane off in the final of Germany 2006, lectured and quizzed Vicente del Bosque's players for an hour, while Cesc Fabregas and Gerard Piquet pinged people's ears, threw rolled-up balls of paper at teammates, and held true to the norm that the bad lads sit at the back of the classroom. At the end, he asked for feedback. Casillas, Spain's captain, ceded to Xavi, a vice-captain, who gave it to the official hot and strong. We sat here and listened to you for an hour telling us about how the rules are going to be interpreted, which is fine, but you go back and you tell Sepp Blatter this, he said. Tell him that because FIFA aren't watering the pitches anything like sufficiently, and because they aren't cutting the playing surface short enough, they are handing a huge advantage to defensive football. If he wants good football and he wants exciting games, tell him that. Tell him to sort the pitches out. Elizondo took an involuntary half-step backwards as Xavi smouldered. It was a valid message too. Casillas and Xavi are shop stewards. The seeds were sown in Nigeria in 1999, when Spain became world youth champions. Despite a severe fever which cost him four kilos, and saw him sleeping in a tracksuit in 39 degree heat because he was shivering with cold, Xavi hasn't had the best of luck in Africa. He suffered conjunctivitis in Egypt at the FIFA Under-17 World Cup, and a horrible animal hair allergy in Rustenburg in the Confederations Cup in 2009. The Barca midfielder had been stellar during Spain's tournament victory. Oscar Tabárez and Michel Platini visited the Spanish camp towards the end of the competition and, according to the Spaniards, gave them the explicit understanding that Xavi had won the vote for the Golden Ball, for best player, and that his teammate Gabri was second. However, at the FIFA Gala, not only did Seydou Keita win the Golden Ball, neither Xavi nor Gabri made the podium, and Pius Ikedia of Nigeria, who were hammered in the quarter-finals, won silver. 
The Spain team walked out of the gala and ate in a pizzeria. Xavi's participation with Spain underlay his success at Barca, topping up one of the few undernourished parts of his game, self-belief. He was always determined, brilliantly talented, athletic, articulate, visionary, but by no means arrogant. Finishing third, first and second in his first three major international tournaments not only helped him develop and ride out the tough years at Barca, it showed him what he was capable of. Winning the Under-19 World Cup in 1999 was the catalyst for an entire generation of young Spaniards who saw that we could win the biggest prizes. It was a massively important achievement for all of us, he said. Guardiola knew innately what it took to win big prizes. Xavi had the abilities from the outset and initially performed precociously, but suffered from not being coached by a genius as Guardiola was by Cruyff. He needed to assimilate hard-nosed confidence before he could not only emulate Guardiola's achievements, but surpass them. Celebrating his 100th cap for Spain, Xavi explained, As soon as I started playing for the youth international sides, I could see and feel the difference. You are regarded differently within your own club. Opposition coaches take more notice of you, and it's more demanding to play against opponents. It's prestigious and it spurs you on. Just ask anyone who's not an international but should be. You feel the difference. Playing for Spain has moulded Xavi, and it's only just and proper that he's given back so much happiness and pride to the country. Development at international level has radically enhanced what he's been able to do for his club. Xavi had been outstanding during the title win in 2005, Barca's first trophy for five years, but the severity of the knee damage he suffered in training early in December that year, when he ruptured cruciate ligaments, would restrict him to a place on the bench for the Champions League final against Arsenal in Paris. By the time the 2006 World Cup came around, he was still not at peak fitness. There were those who were beginning to think that Xavi was a continuation of an old problem for club and country. Talented, but fragile. Instead, he was the solution. It was just that circumstances were conspiring to delay it. By the time Euro 2008 came along, he was ready to dominate, irrespective of the decline of his club's domestic form. One interview I did with him at the time spoke volumes about his pride in putting the old never mind the quality, feel the width maxim to the sword. It was the first time that the wee men were beginning to dominate under Luis Aragonés. As soon as I arrived at the tournament, one of the Spanish Football Federation staff told me, now that Guti and particularly Raúl are not here, the atmosphere is a million times better. Something big could happen this summer. Iniesta, David Silva, Cesc, Santi Cazorla, Xavi and even David Villa were the relatively diminutive talents who were lifting Spain to quite new levels of performance and reliability. Not one of them is above 5 feet 9 inches, some considerably shorter. In Spain's group were Russia, coached by Gus Hiddink. Andrei Arshavin had been banned for the first two matches because of a red card during qualification, but returned in the decisive group match against Sweden. The little Russian destroyed the Swedes, helping to make the first goal, hitting the post, scoring the second and claiming the man of the match prize. In the quarter-final he surpassed that performance again, with an assist and a goal, as Holland were pulled apart. Before the Spain versus Russia rematch in the semi-final, I sat down to film an interview with Xavi. He was buzzing. Another little guy who can rule the world, he reminded me, half joking, half thrilled. Do you know, I'd never even heard of Arshavin before this tournament, and he's absolutely superb. He's just one more example of how football is for the smart guys, not the big guys who can run all day. Then Xavi ruined poor old Arshavin's day, not for the last time, with a goal and a star performance as Spain romped through the semi-final 3-0. Xavi's determining performances during the key matches of Barcelona and Spain have been historic. In the Euro 2008 final, in Vienna, 
he was by far the best player and gave a gorgeous assist for Fernando Torres to defeat Germany. For the first Clásico of the 2008-09 season, it was Xavi's corner Puyol headed down for Eto to score. In the second Clásico, Barca went to the Bernabeu and won 6-2. Xavi walked away with four assists. I've played Madrid many times and never felt so superior to them in any game, he said later. In the 2009 Copa del Rey final, he ran the midfield and scored the fourth goal against Athletic. Against Manchester United later that same month, he was UEFA's man of the match in the Rome Champions League final, sending that delicious curling crossover for Messi to head the ball past Edwin van der Sar for the second goal. In the Spanish Super Cup first leg in Bilbao, he made one for Pedro and scored one in a 2-1 win. Four months later, it was Xavi's chip into the box from which Piquet set Pedro up to score in the Club World Cup final with two minutes left, giving Barca their sixth trophy in a year. The Bernabeu Clásico that season was also a Xavi masterwork. 2-0 and both assists were his, one for Messi, one for Pedro. At the World Cup, he was twice Spain's man of the match and produced a couple of assists, the most crucial of which was his corner for Puyol's match-winning header in the semi-final. He not only made the most passes in that tournament, 669, but also the most accurate passes, 599, for an 89% success rate. So good was his tournament that Michel Platini, UEFA president, asked the Spanish Federation president, Miguel Angel Villar, to request Xavi's Spain number 8 shirt from the Soccer City final as a memento. I couldn't say no, Xavi said. I'm delighted that he gifted it to me, Platini replied the day before Wembley 2011. His football intelligence, his comportment on and off the pitch make him the ideal footballer. I love watching him play. Perhaps his big game mentality was a shade more hidden in 2010-11, but he still produced a goal in the 5-0 Clasico win, an assist in the Super Cup victory, two more in the Copa del Rey semi-final, and that wonderful pass for Pedro's opener against United at Wembley in the Champions League final. After that remarkable 5-0 Clasico victory at the Camp Nou on a rainy, freezing November night in 2010, the Casillas-Hernandez alliance was still strong enough for their mothers to dissect the remarkable result live on Owner FM radio. Maria Mercer Hernandez and Carmen Casillas competed to establish that the other woman's son was lovelier, more dignified or more humble than her own, which is an indication of how sour things eventually became that season when, six months later, Casillas and Xavi were openly disrespecting one another on the pitch during the epic but poisonous four-match Clasico series. They stopped chatting and texting, and Casillas' version of a peace gesture was to tell the papers, I shouldn't have gestured to him the way I did, but when we see each other, I'll just call him a silly bugger, and that'll be it all forgotten. Casillas is an impressive, straight-talking man. A sulker he is not. It's no coincidence that his promotion to Spain captain has coincided with a time when, irrespective of tournament victories, the squad is both harmonious and perpetually hungry to win the next match. However, Xavi's stance in the midst of the mayhem struck me much more forcibly. As Real Madrid and Barcelona exchanged insults and made claim and counterclaim, culminating in each club presenting written complaints to UEFA, he spoke out firmly. He called Madrid's claims against Barcelona lamentable, but he spoke clearly about these complaints to UEFA and said it was pathetic that all these things were going on in the world of football. It seemed clear that he included the Barcelona board in his criticism. Their moaning to the governing body had not impressed him either. What's more, he had the nerve to say so. During my time working in Spain, Xavi has been a generous, fascinating subject for a number of interviews. Someone whose work on the pitch and attitude or intelligence off it makes writing and broadcasting about football an absolute joy. He is up there in the pantheon of all-time great European midfielders and probably, pound for pound, the greatest Spanish footballer.
However, he doesn't even consider himself to be the most talented Spaniard at the Camp Nou. He'll often say that Iniesta is the most complete Spanish footballer I've ever played with, which is why Xavi was disappointed, but not bitterly so, to miss out on the Ballon d'Or in January 2011, when he and Barca's other two musketeers were shortlisted, with Messi winning the title. Firstly, he thinks Messi is the greatest footballer in history. Secondly, not only does he stress that Iniesta possesses gifts he doesn't have, but Andresito scored the World Cup winning goal in the time frame of that award. Probably most importantly, the occupation of the podium by three La Masia products thrilled him. What makes me happiest is that players like Leo, Andresito and I prove that talent remains more important than physical power in modern football. I'm a team player. Individually I'm nothing. I play with the best and that makes me a better player. I depend on my teammates. If they don't find space, I don't find them with the ball and I become a lesser footballer. I don't think Leo is in a position to comment on this out of respect for those who have gone before, but I believe he's the best footballer ever. Leo was brought up here. He's Argentinian, but it's like he's from here. Barca is a football school, but it's also a school of life, where you get taught the values that I think are correct, and Leo is an alumnus of that process. Here, the players are educated how to behave, to demonstrate respect, and I'm very proud to belong to this school. Xavi has earned a couple of nicknames. The late Andres Montes, an eccentric radio and television commentator, called him Humphrey Bogart. Some viewers thought it was because Bogart and Xavi shared saturnine looks, but, really, it was for Bogart's misquoted Play It Again, Sam line from Casablanca. Montes reckoned that, for Spain and Barca, it was always Xavi who would play it again and again and again as that ball flew from boot to boot. Most of the players call him Maki, which is short for Maquina, the Spanish for machine. It's a prosaic industrial nickname for such an inventive player, but there is a warmth and positivity attached to it. Xavi is always working, always smiling, and always having a playful verbal dig at someone. Perpetual motion. His passes come off an incessant production line. He's always prompting and prodding teammates into movement, and into situations where they can damage the opposition. Xavi's movement is a kind of reverse sheepdog trick. Instead of penning a flock into an enclosed space, his darting, nipping and barking is about spreading them around the field, into unexplored, unpredictable spaces. Why no one came up with Shep before, I can't explain. During a match, most of the other guys shout, Makina or Maki when they want me to pass them the ball, apart from Messi and Alves, who just shout Xavi, he said. If I don't get the ball for two minutes, I'm like, Hey, guys, look for me, I'm free. There would be no point in playing otherwise. I'd be happier staying at home. I must have at least 100 touches of the ball every match. If I had to go back to the dressing room with only 50, I'd be ready to kill someone. So, there you have Xavi. Fun to watch, fun to be around. Sublime player, top man. A footballer who epitomises what has gone right at Barcelona over the last couple of decades. I've been a Barca fan since I can remember being alive, he reflected. What's happening right now? How we are playing? It's just a permanent fiesta for anyone who supports this club. Over the years I've bought my mum watches, jewellery, all sorts. But she loves football, so probably the best thing I've ever bought her is her Barca membership and season ticket, so that she can watch all this happening. I am a romantic about football, and I agree with Johan Cruyff's argument that we are only fighting a battle for the soul of beautiful football. I have a lot of respect for Jose Mourinho, but the coaches who will go down in the history books are Guardiola, Saki, Cruyff and Alex Ferguson. These are the guys who have gone that bit further and reinvented the game. They are the winners.
That was The Inverted Sheepdog by Graham Hunter, first published in issue 4 in March 2012. The Inverted Sheepdog is an edited extract from Graham's book Barca, The Making of the Greatest Team in the World, published by Backpage Press. You can find out more about the book at backpagepress.co.uk. Also in issue 4, Javier Pastore talks to Sam Kelly about his move to Paris Saint-Germain, Jonathan Wilson looks at how Zambia's emotional triumph restored zest to the Cup of Nations, Brian Phillips on how to solve a problem like the Europa League, while our Greatest Games feature looks back at Racing 1, Celtic 0 in the Intercontinental Cup final playoff in Montevideo in November 1967. Issue 4, like all issues of The Blizzard, is available on a pay-what-you-like basis at theblizzard.co.uk. Digital editions can be yours from as little as a penny apiece, while print editions start at £6 plus postage. You can also find us on the Kindle and Google Play stores, and subscription options are available. You can subscribe to the Blizzard podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher.com, TuneIn Radio, and pretty much anywhere that you get your audio output. If you've got any comments, feedback or suggestions, then you can email us, podcast at theblizzard.co.uk, or find us on Twitter at blizzard, B-L-Z-Z-R-D.